Hello and welcome to my weekly podcast interview of In the House Seats with me, your host, Craig Bartley. This is where every Sunday we talk about all stuff regarding theatre, film, television and the ups and downs while training for the performing arts industry. Who knows, some things could even relate to your experiences as a theatre wannabe or participant. Or if you are a parent or guardian of a future performer, it may help you to understand about training and the entertainment industry from a different perspective and someone else's point of view. I will be speaking to professional performers, choreographers, adjudicators and industry leaders to find out more about them and their transitions and journeys from learning their crafts to the professionals that they are today. So for the next 30 minutes, all you need to do is sit back, relax, enjoy and listen with us. Today in the house seats, we have West End leading lady, film and television actress, Summer Strallen. Hello, Summer. Hi, Craig. <laughs> Hello, Craig. That's <laughs> <laughs> a bit more isn't it? <laughs> it's brilliant to have you with me today in the house seats, and I'm so excited and thrilled to know more about you and your career. So tell us how it all started, where are you from, and a little bit about your childhood, schooling and growing up. Well, I was born in Hammersmith in London at Queen Charlotte's Hospital and I was brought up in Twickenham in Strawberry Hill, which is a beautiful part of London. And my parents were, my my mother was from there too. So we had sort of stayed there. And when I was very young, went to a convent school. So I was taught by nuns. And that was, that was interesting. I mean, I didn't really appreciate it until now, really, how, how, spiritually aligning that is as a as a child and yeah and that that was till I was 10 and then I went to went to another school after that. So what was schooling like for you were you a bright spark and knew it all or did you uh, certain academics weren't your forte? I think I was quite good I, I wanted to be a vet when I was younger and because of the family that I was born into, it wasn't really something that was going to be not not supported. I think if I had really wanted to do it, it probably would have been okay. And I would have been supported in it. But I think someone showed me a vet having to put their hand up a cow's bottom or something. And <laughs> less interested. I wasn't just like playing with puppies all day. But I think with schooling, I was very good at handwriting. My handwriting is quite is quite nice, but I don't remember being bad or good. I was sort of in the average place of, uh, of schooling, but I really didn't enjoy school. I sort of, my mother always said that I was born 12 and <laughs> I always wanted to sort of be my own person and my own adult. So That's school amazing. did well for me with authority. Oh, bless you. Especially with nuns around, they're very strict, aren't they? Very strict. <laughs> So where did you go on to train vocationally to go into theatre subjects? I went to Arts Educational in Chiswick and I went a year early because my birthday is December. I went the year early rather than waiting till the following July. Yeah. So I was actually 10 when I went to Arts Ed, which, you know, for me now, I think, goodness, it's so young to be sort of thrust into that. And But they were very nurturing and we would do ballet and jazz or ballet and tap or something like that in the morning. And then we would do our educational stuff in the um, academic stuff in the afternoons. 
And I went there because my sister went there. And frankly, I was like, I can either stay at a convent school with a load of girls or I can go to this rather fun, you know, artistic school with a load of boys. So I chose <laughs> that one. <laughs> I was a bit boy crazy. I busted alarm, to be honest. And I was like, yeah, that'll do. That'll do me rather than a convent. <laughs> What do you think nowadays of colleges on the whole with the numbers of students in classes? It's a difficult question. I think ultimately we want to encourage as many artists as possible. But it's like anything, I think there is a tendency to push people to either the West End or, you know, trying to go and get on Broadway or, you know, and that's sort of like the pinnacle of art. And ultimately it isn't, you know, what is the pinnacle of art is creating something that pushes the boundaries and the limits of people's emotions. Mm. And I think that there's a distinct lack of authenticity due to social media now for these younger this younger generation because everything is filtered and we are sort of coming into an age where where it's more okay you know there's less stigma around mental health and but there's still a a sort of veneer that people put on especially in musical theater I'd say but that's because you have to be it has been so that you it was a very male-dominated profession as far as producers and things like that so any women would including myself I you know I totally am talking from experience that we have had to pretend like we are men rather than celebrate our own femininity and the nurture and how that and and work together and balance it out you know we've got all of these women who sort of had to step up as sort of straight down the line you know everything's about results rather than about nurturing what the art form is about. So, and I think that that's that's starting to happen. And I think the new generations are Becoming up more aware, aren't they? Yes. And I think that's, you know, just because there's more information. Yeah, yeah. People who can, who you can hear from who might feel the same as you. And and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that, but I do, do think that there needs to be more emphasis on creation of art rather than execution of art. The execution, you know, I always sometimes, I sometimes find that in the US, it's even worse. It's all about the execution. It's like, I can do seven pirouettes, but I want to know why you're doing seven pirouettes. I'd rather see you do one with a meaning than do seven with no meaning. Absolutely. Um, And because we've been, again, having that, having the internet and, and more information and more, is more easily accessible to see these things. It's instant gratification. That's what is in society right now, which is why... Yeah, I agree, because I always tell my college students that there's more to performing arts and the profession than just being an actor, singer or a dancer. You know, because you can't do that always. You've got to have, like in this uh, scenario that we're in at the moment, you've got to have another string to your bow that you can fall back on. Yes, absolutely. I agree. But what I would say is about falling forward. Yeah. Falling forward and doing something that you finding there are so many things in the world. That's what I realized. I came from a dynasty of performers. And yeah. for a long time, I was like, this is the be all and end all. 
There's nothing else that's more important. Fame and fortune, you know, being approved of, being enough. And now because of the sort of also because of the pandemic, I mean, I was doing it before, but I was finding, trying to be open to other things that, that bring me joy because yeah. other things do bring me joy. And, and it's about recognizing those things in the moment of like, even like, a, you know, a hug from someone can yeah. be so joyful. And, and if you're not thinking about, okay, if you're not thinking, oh, well, I need to, uh, yeah, I'm in this hug, but I need to get to ballet class, then you're not in the hug properly. You're not, you're not appreciating that moment. And, and that's, that's from a book that I read called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which is, which is uh, which absolutely, I read it in 2010 when I was 26, and it changed my whole outlook on life. You come from a very talented line of performers within your family circle. You have an older sister, Scarlett, with you second, then Zizi, and the youngest, Saskia, who's also known as Sassy, who are all accomplished performers. Then you have your dad, the lovely Sandy Strallen, and mum, Sherida, who is the sister to your aunt, Bonnie Langford. And then your grandmother, Babette Palmer, who famed the fabulous Babette Palmer young set, and you even have a panto legend, Christopher Biggins, as your godfather. Chris is actually my adopted godfather. Ah, okay. You let that one slip through. Like, as far as like the baptism, my real godfather is actually Anthony Van Last. Oh, who wow. Choreographed yeah. Mamma Mia and Tina yeah. and Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, and you so choreographed your mum in Song and Dance as well. Correct. That's how, <laughs> that's how they know Anthony, yeah. My mother was pregnant with me when she was doing Song and Dance. Wow. She was doing dance for five months of her pregnancy. I mean, I'm like, no wonder I've got on Coco Loco. I'm going <laughs> upside down as a kid, you know, like being <laughs> around as a, as a fetus. Oh, goodness me. Have you ever done any other work or day jobs outside of the entertainment industry? When I was 15, I did about two weeks of being in a hairdresser's as like a person who washed hair for like two weeks and then I got into cats. So, <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave now. And, and then, was, it, was it a hard decision to make? <laughs> um, I, I must say probably not at the time. <laughs> and then now I am a yoga host at a studio here in New York because I need money, you know, like yeah. yoga is something that I enjoy. So I decided, you know, to look into that area and yeah so that's that's kind of my part-time job right now you know for a learner that is in training right now what advice would you offer to a vocational student wanting to achieve as a performer my biggest and most important piece of advice would be to find your faith. And I don't mean like religion. I'm not a religious person, but I am a mystical person because I feel that in order to find that space of light when you're performing, you have to go to a place that is so pure 
in yourself. And so to do that, you have to be able to release any ego that is you and become whoever you're being. And the best thing for me that I wish I'd known before is about meditation because the thing with meditation, the main sort of thing about meditation is breathing. We forget that we, as animals, breathe without even realizing it. But our fight or flight system in our brain, our hormones, make us hold our breath if we're in a freeze state. And so when you're nervous, that's what you go into. Your adrenaline goes up. And, and then it depends on how your brain works, how easily you can control that. And yeah. so if you suffer from depression or anxiety, that's what it is. It's that hormone change that is what cannot be controlled. But it can be with breath. If you are able to control your breath, control your breathing, it brings oxygen into your body and gets changed and moves out. And it, and it just helps the flow of your hormones and your cells. You know, your cells change 9,000 times, you know, it's like they change, they're changing all the time and how brilliant that they're just, you know, our bodies are renewing every single moment of the day. And yeah. so you can take a moment to just renew yourself. And I, I wish that I had known that because I spent a lot of my years, you know, in theater, especially because it's live with my breath, like above my larynx. And so yeah. I couldn't ever... I Relax didn't into feel something. like I was in my body. Yeah, so breath, the, the power of the breath. It's called prana in Sanskrit. Well, that's, that's good advice for an up-and-coming student to look into, for sure. Obviously, because of your musical theatre ability, you've had a fantastic career with credits such as The Sound of Music, Scrooge, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Fosse, Guys and Dolls, A Midsummer Night's Dream, The Boyfriend, and even Pantomime in the title role of Dick Whittington at the Barbican Theatre London, and many, many more, which we will talk about later. Do you have a favourite out of those shows that I've just mentioned? It was a really good time at Regent's Park with The Boyfriend and Midsummer Night's Dream because I really felt like I was given the opportunity because I played Helena in Midsummer Night's Dream, which was a big role, you know, for someone who had sort of not been to... Uradas and stuff. You know, yeah. Yeah. So so I felt really lucky and Ian Tolbert was so kind and fun and we, we, we had a lot of fun doing it. But, you know, from the question before... A lot of these shows that I, you know, that that have happened and, and that I did, again, I wasn't able to feel that joy because I was in a constant state of adrenaline. Right. And it made me ill. You know, it made me, so, like my, my brain, my perfectionist brain wouldn't allow me to enjoy anything fully. And so the, the enjoyment that I got out of most shows was from the social aspect and from the community aspect of meeting the other artists. At the time, I wasn't wanting to learn from. I thought I knew everything. But, but I have, in hindsight, I know what I learned from those people was so it was invaluable. So, yeah, I mean, as much as there were moments of joy, 
I do feel that, you know, it, had I known about breathing and had I known about stress levels and things like that, I would have enjoyed them a lot more. But, you know, it, it's always, it's fun. It is fun when you're yeah. doing it. You know, you can't help but have fun. Absolutely. In some moments. Another show that you were absolutely brilliant in was playing the role of Janet Vandegraaff in The Drowsy Chaperone at the Novello Theatre where you received a 2008 Olivia Award nomination for Best Supporting Role in a Musical. How was it to portray her as she's a larger-than-life character? Well, it was actually Best Leading Actress in a Musical. Oh, was it? Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. I think it was. Yeah, I did. the boyfriend was supporting. I think, I think that was leading. Um, <laughs> I can't keep up with you. <laughs> but that was a really fantastic time. Casey Nicola was so much fun to work with. I was also working with John Partridge, who I, I had done Cats with um, many years before, or four or five years before. And a few people who I'd sort of come across along the way. There was a, a, a lovely guy, Sean, who I had done Scrooge with when I was 12, you know, and then was doing this. And, you know, obviously there was a lot of pressure because Sutton Foster had done it and, you know, all of that. It was a really good time. And I mean, the costumes were unbelievable. They were so beautiful by Craig Barnes, Craig Barnes, who I think won the Tony for them. But I would love to do Janet now. Right. Because I feel like I could give her a lot more. I mean, I don't want to show off no more was my mantra like three years ago. It was like, yeah. I, don't want, I don't want to be doing this anymore. And I, you know, I've had this and I've had that and oh my goodness. And it is, you know, having that pull, that, that addiction to the spotlight, um, you know, I know that feeling. And so, whereas when I was 21, I think I was 22 when I was doing it, I didn't quite understand that nuance. You know, I didn't quite get that nuance. Um, yeah. So I'd love to do it again. In December 2008, you were also a competitor on a special West End edition of The Weakest Link and finished in second place. Well done, you! <laughs> was this hard to think ahead at the time, especially with Anne Robinson in charge of the questions? Yes, I have a funny story about that because we, me, Rachel Tucker and Hilary O'Neill, I think it was, we had sort of said like, girls stick together and then the last I think before the semi-final or something it was me Ben and Hillary and Hillary was it Hillary I can't remember anyway I voted Rachel off instead of voting Ben off <laughs> and I don't quite know why oh I remember she had to go and do a uh, she was on for Scaramouche. She was playing. Oh, okay. And she had to go and be do Scaramouche that night because she covered it. And I, and I thought I was being nice by letting it like voting her off in order to get back to London <laughs> to do the thing. And I don't think she ever forgave me for it. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, it was, it, I mean, if you watch that back, my concentration face is so funny. The way that Anne says the questions is so confusing. It's right. like, it doesn't make sense when you're in it, when you're there. Yes. Like, I watched the week, you know, I used to watch The Weakest Link and I would be like, oh, that's such a silly question. Of course it's this, you know. But when you're there, it's a lot more difficult. Again, that adrenaline rush, it just, you know, it stops your brain from working. It just puts yeah. you in a freeze. And you came second. Yeah. 
Wow, well done. In 2012, you brilliantly portrayed the role of Dale Tremont in the Ginger Rogers role in Top Hat at the Aldwych Theatre London, where once again you received a 2013 Olivia Award nomination. How was it for you to portray such an iconic part with the amazing Bill Deemer's choreography? It was wonderful. Again, you know, that moment of, in hindsight, realising how much better it could have been if I had been less of a perfectionist. Because if I did something, you know, one note wrong, or I'm more in my body when it comes to dancing. I have that because I started so young. It's just muscle memory that that I never really worry about dancing at all. But with singing, I, as I said, like I hadn't got into my lungs. So I didn't, I never really like took a proper breath. And that sort of also followed or like permeated into my relationships in the company as well. And and in different, you know, and that goes for, for everything. And I really wanted to be a leading lady who led, you know, mm. but I subsequently have learned, you know, from the Buddha that you, you lead from, from behind, you lead from, from or within the crowd. And I felt so much pressure to be this person in this thing that I almost was trying too hard that right. it would resist, it was making it resist me. But I did have, I had a moment of joy on the, I think it was the press night. It was either the press night or the first preview in London because we'd done it on a tour right. where I saw myself with Tom in the spotlight. So I saw a silhouette of me and Tom in the spotlight. We were like dancing up towards the back cloth and I saw the spot and I was like, I honestly felt like I was Ginger Rogers and he was Fred Astaire. But it was just like a, a moment of peace and I'll never forget that. It was a beautiful production. And I think yeah. Bill's work was just, it was so classy. It's lovely to see such a classy show in, in town, you know? Yeah, yeah, it, it is. I mean, you know, as I'm a fierce feminist. So, you know, some of the, some of the content is very dated. And, right. and I think can be updated easily and could have been. But that's also why I'm being a director. Right, there you go. I feel like that's what my calling is, is to kind of bring the my beloved MGM golden era, you know, musicals to the the new generations because they're so important. The amount of skill that those people had to yes, okay, they had recorded, pre-recorded the songs and pre-recorded the taps and everything. But they'd still pre-recorded them. It wasn't that they, yeah, you know, yeah. they were them doing it. And they all had, they were all a triple threat. You know, they were amazing at dancing, singing and acting and telling the story. Yeah, you know? with sincerity. It's exactly, and with authenticity. And yeah. we can learn a lot from, from those as well. But also, you know, on the flip side, Sometimes we just want a bit of simplicity and a bit of romance. And yeah. that's what that was. It was, ro it was a romantic, old school idea of what romance is. And for some people, they absolutely lapped it up. I think those shows are beautiful because of the fact that you don't ever have anything for the middle of the road age. And they can relate to, to that era. Yes. You know? Yeah, because we... I mean, even I can relate, you know, yes. 
enjoy it for what it is and not have to see the message. There doesn't necessarily always have to be a message. I personally prefer there to be a message. Yes. Um, but that's because I'm an actress. So when I'm researching or, or studying for a role, I'll find the message that that character will come to at the end of their journey. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, how they go through that. And I think sometimes with musical theatre direction, that's not a priority. And I think it should be. Mm. It doesn't always bring out the rationale within the storyline, does it? No, exactly. And so that's why it needs to be there. It needs to be explored. television you have been seen in both casualty and doctors for the bbc hotel babylon the land girls also for the bbc five aside and of course channel 4's hollyoaks where you played the role of summer shore tell us a little bit about this role and how you found the filming and fast learning experience within a soap yeah that was a that was a whirlwind time i went for an audition that i thought was just playing Maria, you know, taking over from Connie Fisher. Yeah. And at the time, ALW had his offices in, sorry, Lord Andrew Lloyd yes. <laughs> had his offices on Tower Street. Tower Street, um, yeah. And there was this wonderful conservatory out the back and a grand piano in it. And It's beautiful, it's, isn't it? And do you know what, I, sorry, butting in, but I love the acoustics in there when you're auditioning. I know, but it's gone now. I don't know who owns it, but oh, he's, really? he's moved. Yeah. Oh. But, it was a wonderful space and he was sort of sat on the piano and it was just a, that again, like that's a ridiculous audition that you're just like, am I in a dream right now? This is, yeah. but yeah. So I, I did a couple of auditions for that. And then my agent called me and said, so they want you to do the show, but they also top, top secret want you to go and be in Hollyoaks for, for we, they don't know how long yet. So I literally sort of was like then being shipped up to Liverpool to live in a hotel with my dogs at the time, uh, two dogs, <laughs> and was like, oh no, I had one, sorry, and Bam Bam, and went to the studios. And I, you know, by that point, I think I, I think I'd done maybe, maybe Hotel Babylon, which was like one line. And I didn't know anything. I was just like completely thrown into the fire. And it was the best thing that could have happened, especially there, because they are there, you know, there is such a, a young cast that they were used to working with people who were less experienced. Yes. So they gave me that, the sort of leeway to, anyway, to yeah. learn stuff, you know, like reverse shots and, you know, looking down this side of the camera and not, you know, not looking into the camera. That's, yeah. that's one that's really hard not to do, you know, when oh, it's, like it's so, odd. it's, it's you know, drawing, isn't it? When you're so hard, you know, but it was, it was fantastic. And I actually met one of my bestest friends on that job, Louis Batley, you know, and you, you take, one or two people from a job and and that that she was really one of those amazing things that came out of it and and also the experience you know it was just invaluable to me because then I ended up being able to get land girls and you know because I had that confidence that I knew what I I I mean I never thought that I knew exactly what I was doing but I had a (laughs) I had an idea of what of what I needed to. Well, let me tell you, if you don't know what you're doing, you're a very good blagger. <laughs> honestly, I honestly, I I think that I deserve an Oscar for the amount of times 
that I've pretended to know what I've <laughs> and also pretended to be in love with people in, in shows. Oh, there you go. For winning, tell you that. <laughs> Since your early career began, do you think that the entertainment industry has changed much to fit today's social current trends with too much inclusion of social media and reality television? Yes. I mean, it's, it's a difficult question because, you know, especially with, with doing that Hollyoaks thing, it was to bring more, you know, a younger generation to the theatre and, and to the sound of music. Yeah, music and yeah. that's what ALW's mission in life is to, is to bring you know, as many different demographics to the theatre. You know, he's always doing that. And so with the programmes, you know, like the reality programmes that he did, it's a double-edged sword because if that's the case, people think that, you know, that anyone can do it and it's something that you don't have to train for. You can be working in a call centre and just happen to have a natural ability it's just not the case. Even I'm sure Connie would say she had trained to be in theatre. And well, Connie was trained. at Mountview for years. Yeah, you know, and she, it is very hard because you can't sustain an eight-show week consistently and be at the peak of your health to, you know, to sustain the role. It's impossible. Well, and also with training, you get a sense from, usually from the teachers, of how the business works and how, you know, you must... Be kind to people and you must not that they're not. I'm just saying that there is a there is a way of sort of conducting yourself that I mean, hands up, I probably didn't do it because I was so in my own insecurity space. But, you know, I still felt that I had to work my way up and I was, you know, I was proud that I had done that. You know, yeah. I'd come from swing, ensemble, first, second cover, first cover, you know gone up that ladder. So I did feel that I had that confidence. And with people who are, you know, social media... Uh, it's, it's your people, the your only way is Essex and things like that that annoy me because they haven't done the training and they're taking jobs from trained actors and so forth. Yeah. They're, yeah. they're the ones that rile me the most. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I always feel that these people have done stuff before you know they have trained in some way and they've then got into these programs which are basically acting you know they they are a lot of them are are written you know they they yes they have a blowout of some kind and then they have to do it again you know yeah, they have to yeah. do it for the cameras so it is kind of an acting job in a way i believe i'm i'm have never done one <laughs> before, but, but i believe it is that and same you know with the with the kardashians and those kind of people, I just feel that you can have a natural talent and a natural ability, but I, it's how you, as you say, learn to sustain it. Mm. And that goes for mentally too, you know, and that's why pop stars, so many pop stars lose their minds because they're thrown into something that they don't quite know how to deal with. And then they have all this pressure to make a brilliant second album or, you know, like with, people who have come from social media who do shows, they do one show and then they have to, you know, do the next one and, and it has to be just as good and there's so much pressure on them. I think also with the industry, there isn't enough human resources. <laughs> there aren't enough people nurturing these people because ultimately actors, artists are, as I said, very susceptible 
very sensitive beings. If we weren't sensitive, we wouldn't be able to do the job. We wouldn't yeah. be able to feel how other people feel. We wouldn't be able to, uh, to access that feeling if we weren't sensitive to how mm, other people true. feel. This is so great that I have you with me here in the house seats today, as I've actually wanted to interview you for ages, but you're always so busy. Apart from being on stage, you have another great love in your life. Sponge cake. Oh, yeah. I bloody love sponge cake. I love cupcakes. <laughs> I love it. And the thing is, I, ha- I, I moved to the country once with a boyfriend for like six months. It was actually after Top Hat because... After Top Hat, I was exhausted, you know, mentally and emotionally and physically. And I ended up really getting unhealthy and from eating so much sugar from lots of sponge cake. Yeah, I was wondering what you were going to say. <laughs> um, yeah, my other, my other love is, is love and learning how to do that for myself, but also to be able to give it to other people. Sure. And, but yeah, sponge cake definitely can make those feelings subside sometimes. Is there a specific sponge cake? I mean, would it be a Battenberg or a Victoria sponge? I used to absolutely love the Marks and Spencer's birthday cake. Oh, right. Uh, But I don't know what Mary Berry would call it. I think it's a Genoese sponge. I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you ever go on to um, the uh, Bake Off? Right. Very, very. Would I go on? Yeah. No. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible cook. (laughs) <laughs> I've never had time to learn how to cook. I've actually, in the pandemic, I've been learning how to cook more. But food for me is definitely a fuel. And so that's why, like, over the last few years, sponge cake is a real treat. Uh, well, I don't look at it as a treat now. I look at it as something that actually isn't very good for me. You know, but it was, it it's comforting at the time. Yeah. So I'm just like, sometimes, you know what? You just feel like a bit of sponge cake. and that's Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> Cupcakes have come a, a close second. <laughs> Going back to working on stage and your time on Guys and Dolls, a musical that played at London's Piccadilly Theatre, why did you find working with Ewan McGregor on that production hands down as the best loved celebrity that you've ever worked with? It was sort of a, a, a combination of. Ewan, Jenna, Doug Hodge, and Jane Krakowski. They, as the leading members of the company, were incredible. They, and also Michael Grandage and Rob Ashford. I've worked with Rob subsequently many, many times since Guys and Dolls. And the thing that I love about them is that they made every person in the, in the show feel valued everybody had their place in the show and we all had our different characters and it's a bit like why dancers love doing cats and Mm. you know cats is a marmite for people some people like cats some people don't like some people hate it but as a dancer when you do it it gives you a sense of of individualism and, Mm. and, and and uniqueness and you can bring that to that character every single night and with Ewan 
I was obviously doing the Havana Girl section. I was the Havana Girl in Havana, which was, you know, it's a featured ensemble. It wasn't anything really. But the press obviously went for it because I was in a red dress. I had my leg up by his face. He was holding it, you know, it was in a split. It was it, So that was amazing. But also the kind of the buzz that was around it. I mean, every day, every night, we had a standing ovation after sit, sit Down, You're Rocking the Boat. We had people like Lucy Liu coming to see Jane Krakowski, um, Albert Finney coming to see Ewan McGregor. Like, it was like a, a Keanu Reeves came. You know, it was just like an incredible celebration that these people were coming to see this musical because yeah. of those people. And, you know, yeah, after the show, there was, you couldn't get down the street because all of the fans for Ewan. And he and Doug and Jane and Jenna were just so kind and so appreciative of what we, the ensemble, were doing. And that you just can't, that just makes everybody feel brilliant. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and also makes everyone feel supported. So that's very important in a musical to all be inclusive. Effort. Yeah. Well, that's like that's what I've learned subsequently, having done leads and and felt so alone because I wanted I was as I said was trying so hard to be friends with people and and then my perfectionism and my insecurity would come in and so it was inconsistent. Whereas mm. they all four of them were consistently supportive and consistently gorgeous. And it, you know, now in hindsight, talking about it, it's, it's very much about consistency. And, yeah, you know, yeah. again, that breath, being consistent, being calm, being a level frequency that is focused is, is the best thing. In 2010, you took on the role of Meg Giri and recorded the original cast album in the Phantom sequel musical Love Never Dies, playing at London's Adelphi Theatre, unfortunately to really negative production reviews. Now, personally, I absolutely loved this show with its great projected set and super choreographic staging and direction. How did you find Meg as a character? And would you have rather played Christine? Jack O'Brien, who directed it originally, and Jerry Mitchell, of course, who did the choreography. Mm. Jack comes from, you know, he directs plays and all of that. And I, again, as I said before, try to find the four-dimensional character. So I had lots of different subplots that actually were and could have been in the writing to make it almost more, more balanced as far as like, Christine and Meg and Raoul and the Phantom, you know, it, it could have been that with sort of Madame Giry in the background as, as normal. But unfortunately, it wasn't written. And so even though we knew it was there because we talked about it and we explored it as, as actors, the critics wouldn't have seen it. It was very, yeah. as a, you know, it was that very nuanced thing, which I think is why I got nominated for it. But I, I loved playing it because... I had to be a depressive in the backstory was that Meg had been basically pimped out to the producers and the, the money, the investors in Coney Island. Well, and this is the thing, because you played Meg very differently and more dynamically 
outgoing to how she is cast in the actual Phantom production. Um, although I suppose she, as a character, has been more world-wise and older within the story timeline, being since the Paris Opera House and the Coney Island several years on. So I guess yeah. that's why you brought that into the characterization. Yeah, I think she's 10 years older, right? So she's yes. like 26 at the time. Yeah. And she's, you know, and, and at the beginning of the one of the first versions, I can't remember, it's definitely in, in the concept album. Madame Giry basically says to her, you know, go and be with this man. He gives us a lot of things or we need, we need something for the license or something, you know, it's like she was, she was basically being pimped by Madame Giry to all these investors to help the Phantom. And then that's why, you know, having given herself as a, you know, herself, her body and, yes. her, uh, you know, her, her emotions to, you know, like any prostitute, really, she's prostituted herself for the Phantom to acknowledge her and to give her that, that approval and actually what happens is that he has been for 10 years thinking about Christine when actually he's, you know, not that she was, there's sort of this fine line of whether she was in love with him, whether she wasn't, you know, because also Ramin was a sort of younger phantom and he was more kind of sexy. Yeah. So it yeah. was, it, it, there is so much in it. There's so much in her. I mean, obviously, as I say, like Christine was was seen to be the lead because it was more focused on her and she had the song and whatever. But the character isn't, you know, there were there were nuances for both. Yeah. So and Sierra and I got on really well at the time. And so we sort of lifted each other up and 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 felt that support. So yeah, no, I I don't wish that I'd played Christine, you know, but I but I do wish that Meg had been more acknowledged in the writing for it to make sense for her to but to bring her into the forefront of the storyline more yeah and and want to you know and go crazy she goes nuts she goes takes the child and 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 is going to throw himself and herself off the bridge off the the pier pier. and they they stop her and then she gets hold of this gun and she's and she by accident you know by accident on purpose we don't know she just flips out could Um, be another sequel (laughs) Yeah, like where, well, where does she go? There you go. go I mean, yes. the, like in the in the first version, it could be I the think, child's comeback, right? I mean, I literally like sat in the back of the while they sang "Once Upon Another Time," you know, like for the yeah. time, and I'm like just sat there crying. And then the second version, they had me go off, and I'm like. Wait a sec. So what happens? What happens to Meg? <laughs> I mean, personally, I wanted her to throw herself off the pier. <laughs> I did. You're I'm a like, drama queen deep down. Maybe got crazy, and then she's killed her best friend. Yeah. Like, and the phantom doesn't love her, so she would probably kill herself. She'd probably, you know, she's already there. Staying with theatre for a moment, if there were one particular role that you could play, what would it be? Or have you played your favourite already? I would love to play Meg in Hercules. Ooh. If it, when it happens. Yeah. And I would also love to play the Goldie Horn part in Death Becomes Her. Oh, yes. Because she's like not very, she's like the unattractive, like ugly one at the beginning. So you get yes. to do that and then you get to be glamorous or the Isabella Rossellini part because I think she could steal it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I love Death Becomes Her. 
but also I, I would always, I've always wanted to do Velma in, in Chicago. I think me and my sister, one of my sisters should do it together. It would be hilarious. I wouldn't mind now that they've done um, company with a, yeah. with a woman as Bobby. I think that would be a brilliant role. I mean, I am Bobby right now. <laughs> I'm 35 and single with all my friends who are married or with kids or, you know, going, oh, when are you going to find someone? Or when, are you, you know, it's literally my life. So Yeah, but Summer, sometimes, you know what, when you rush into something or if it doesn't happen at that particular time, it's not the time. Absolutely. Oh, I agree. Because otherwise, it might you might delve right in, and then it's the wrong person, and then you're just going to go through hell. And there's no point. That is yeah. why I'm single at 35 because I have been mostly bless their hearts with actors who are, you know, as I said, sensitive and, and needy in a way. Yeah. We are needy of approval, and and so when it hasn't felt right, luckily a lot of them stepped away for me to be free, you know? And, and so it's just when you want to have a life outside of work. I specifically met, well, we've been together 18 years now, but I did not want to meet somebody in the industry Mm. because I found that people that I have been out with in the industry before we had the same topic of conversation and it was the same lifestyle just two people running the same lifestyle but that's that's also why we do gravitate to those people because it isn't a socially acceptable lifestyle no it isn't going to bed at 2 a.m because you can't you know wind down until that time and then waking up at 11 a.m or 12 p.m you know it it is a it is a lifestyle that somebody has to understand yeah yeah I always think that maybe a doctor or you know somebody who or or even an attorney or a lawyer who understands how they have to give so much of their life to the profession can't just go out on a Sunday night and get wrecked you know or, or like be with your friends in a loud bar you know you can't do it you no. can't your life so that's why you have to also take the time to be able to do that Changing the subject now from work, what have you been up to in lockdown and have you learned any new skills or taken up a new hobby? Well, I have set up a business called The Stralen Collective and oh, right. it is a platform for artists and wellness freelancers who give classes online. And I wanted to do it because I feel that one, that I'm, I'm a person who doesn't mind asking for help now. So I put it out there to for for someone to help me, and I now have an amazing business partner who is is helping with all the back end sort of stuff because I want to help my community. I want people to be able to make money in this time, and I realise that you know I'm talking to you via Zoom now, and we've it's opened up the global community. I am in the US, and I can teach my fans in the UK or mm. my sister's in the US and can teach her fans in the UK and vice versa. And, and, and I feel like the more that we can bring the community together, a community of professionals together who have so much to give, they normally are giving it in their job, in their 
TV production or their theatre production or their film production. And we aren't able to give that. And that's why everyone feels so stifled because they can't express their gift and their light and their love. So, you know, and even though the virtual thing isn't ideal, it is still something that we can use positively to expand our community in such a beautiful way. And also bringing like awareness to mental health um, because I've suffered so, so much throughout my life and, and didn't really realize. But I also have so many tools that I, that I use and people who teach these tools and teach these skills in mental health that I wanted to bring them to a platform so that anyone who knows me as a theater person can learn these different, these different tools as well. Is there a, a website or something people can... Yes, it's com. We're on Instagram at The Stralen Collective and Twitter at The Stralen Co. And my Instagram is at summerstralen. Twitter Summer Stralen one and, and I'm posting all about that. We have an amazing Moulin Rouge event coming up on November the 13th, which I'm so excited about. It's with two of the leads, Ricky Rojas and Robin Herder, who's Robin, who's just been Tony nominated. The fact that we are getting these people, these kinds of people, giving their wisdom, you would never get that if they were still doing the shows. So people, I would love people to be able to take advantage of this time we, you know, not only for themselves, but also to help out the theatre community as well, and and the television community. We've got my uh, a lovely friend Sam Phillips who was in The Crown. He's doing an acting course in January. All of these amazing things, you know, and safely because it's via Zoom. Well, that's great. That's a great plug there. And don't forget to go online, listeners, and look at the Strallen Collective for sure. professional performer and an active and proud member of Equity, the Actors' Union, do you feel that the industry is changing for the better or worse? I think there are pros and cons with, as we say, with this sort of secular social media thing where everyone's kind of against, for each other and they're celebratory in some senses, but they're also incredibly self-absorbed. So I think that what needs to happen is education about unions in order for people to understand what they actually are. Because since the 80s, the strength of the union has not been what it was. But the thing that I always try to educate people on is that the unions are only as strong as its members. And so you have to have your membership. The more people who have a membership of a union, the the louder our voice will be. And that's a good thing that's happened with the pandemic is that, you know, it's highlighted the fact that so many people are not heard and not seen and not looked after in this society. And that we have to now open our eyes, especially as white people, um, you know, to the systemic racism, to exploitation of workers. It's every, you know, in, and that is not only, you know, with Chinese children in, you know, or, or wherever, Bangladeshi or Morocco, you know, working for a pound a day or even a penny a day. It's not just them. It's, it's the West End community as well. You know, mm. we have been exploited and been given crumbs and now that we know with, the, you know, bringing 1.28 billion pounds to the economy, that's been unveiled to us. The, the actual figures have been unveiled and we've gone, 
oh my goodness, this is, this is bigger than we think, you know, mm-hmm. and who is benefiting from it? Definitely not the performers because the no. performers are having to live an hour away outside of London and have two jobs as well yeah. as being in a West End show. So that's what I, when I got involved in, in the unions in like 2014, 15, when I was trying to do Damsel in Distress and there were three of the ensemble having to get the train down to London to do Matilda auditions that they'd done already six rounds of it. And then they were going in for a new round with new people. And I was just like, this is not okay. We need to make sure that these people are protected. I need to make sure as someone who has been in that position as an ensemble member, and now as a leading member, I need to lead from within and say, this is not okay to treat people. It's just human, uh, you know, humanity. It's not even about giving them special privileges. It's just about treating them like humans. In the West End, you have recently been playing the role of Inga in Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein at the Garrick Theatre and recorded the cast album too. I absolutely adored this production as it's so much fun to watch with such a talented cast. How did you find Inga to play? Playing Inga was a joy to play. But again, it was because I found the nuances. I believed that Inga was actually like a Harvard graduate. And I feel like if we had just changed that line about Heidelberg University to Harvard University, it would have made the critics like it even more because it meant that she was actually very, very intelligent. Right. And that he didn't just go for her because she had big boobs and blonde hair. You yes, know. because the, hay- the hayride scene on the wagon was very poignant in your uh, role. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you know, but also that it's the... It, the thing that I loved about that is that she was so a, a, a fierce feminist. She know, you know, women and or anybody should know what their power is. And if your power is your body and your sexuality, then you can use it to your advantage as, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. You know, and so it's an innocence that she has that is that but such a connection to herself and so unashamedly herself, which is you know, totally the opposite of me. <laughs> but that's probably why I enjoyed playing her. And also Absolutely obviously brilliant. Mel, meeting Mel Brooks in New York, actually, I, I did my audition and he basically offered it to me on the spot. And rightly I, rightly it, given, for sure. Even though theatres are currently closed, is there anything else on the cards for you coming up or can't you say at present? Honestly, there really isn't. Apart from the Stralen Collective, I'm working tirelessly every single day to get that going because I feel that we need to, you know, help the community and and also the audiences need the light that we have to give as artists. And we're going to be spending a lot of time inside. There's daylight saving. It's going to become dark again. And, you know, seasonal affective disorder is a big deal. And if we can just bring a bit of joy and a bit of light to people's 
living rooms and also give them the opportunity to meet these people that they wouldn't necessarily meet and be able to potentially dance around their living room without anyone seeing but with somebody who is who's in these productions and and who can give so much so much wisdom yeah i I just think is the best thing to do for the performers for the wellness freelancers and also for the global community we have to all come together now and share each other's light absolutely So what an amazing career you've had within the industry. And it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you today and learn more about you along with my listeners. So to everybody out there, I suggest that you look out for Summer on her next venture and to look up the Stralen Collective with the website one more time. www.thestralencollective.com Perfect. Great to chat with you today, Summer. And thank you so much for being in the house. Lots of love and light to you. Well, unfortunately, that's it for this week. However, don't forget to tune in every Sunday for my next guest in the house seats. Chat soon. This broadcast can be heard on my website at www.craigbartley.com or tune in on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher Worldwide and Google Podcasts by looking up In the House Seats with Craig Bartley.